The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour. U.S. stocks hit fresh record highs as investors ditch bonds amid trade deal hopes. But uncertainty over progress on a U.S.-China trade agreement pushes Asian shares from a six-month peak. Respite for Beijing, China's imports and exports fall by less than expected in October, providing some relief to the tariff-hit economy. EU finance ministers gather under the threat of possible U.S. tariffs, but Economic Commissioner Pierre Moscovici tells CNBC he thinks trade conflict can be avoided. As far as EU and U.S. are concerned, I would thought that uh, we were more than allies, friends, and that between friends you don't sanction each other. Disney beats fourth quarter earnings expectations, sending shares higher in after-hours trade. In an exclusive interview with CNBC, the CEO, Bob Iger, talks up deals for Disney Plus just days before its launch. We're pleased to announce today a deal with Amazon. Uh, we have deals with Apple, we have deals with Samsung, with Microsoft, with uh, LG, with Google. So significant, significant uh, you know, progress in terms of distribution deals. And NBC News learns that the former New York City mayor and vocal Trump critic Michael Bloomberg is preparing to enter the 2020 Democratic presidential race, but apparently hasn't yet made the final decision. Good morning, everybody. Let's kick off the programme, as we have done in recent days, by focusing on earnings that are coming through from European companies. And we begin this morning with Allianz. Quick look at the numbers. Operating profits strong at €3 billion. Euros. Net income attributable to shareholders up a, a more modest 0.6% to €1.9 billion. Euros. The, um, the group here, though, saying the operating profit outlook for 2019 expected in the upper half of the target range of 11.5 billion euros, plus or minus 500 billion euros. They're giving us a, uh, a basic earnings per share increase of 2.7% to 4.68 uh, euros in the third quarter and an annualised return on equity at 14.1%. The full year for 2018 was 13.2%. So the market will be comfortable with the improvement, I think, on the return on equity quite important for these businesses. We always look at the combined ratio when it comes to companies that have a strong insurance uh, element. The combined ratio up 1.2 percentage points to 94.3% in the third quarter compared to a year earlier period. And of course, anything below 100 is profitable business for the insurance segment. So 94.3% in the third quarter of 2019 vis-a-vis -vis the year-ago period. Uh, a jump in assets under management, an all-time high of uh, 2,280 billion euros here. Um, third quarter revenue, 33.4 billion. Um, and I think the headline message here, um, strong internal revenue growth, 
strong operating profit. Again, another indication that um, there are sectors of the financial economy in Europe that are beginning to look more interesting. I'm glad we've got Scott Teal coming up in a few moments' time. Um, he'll join us. He's a fixed income specialist as well. Because houses like Allianz, of course, historically, uh, they've owned a lot of bonds and for their clients and as part of their portfolio, not on the insurance activities, but on the investment activities. They've gone up aggressively as well. Now what? Now, what, what for a house that owns PIMCO? What happens next for these bond markets as well? Especially when we saw that yield action yesterday, those comments from Bostick as well. Mm. And the idea that actually there's a little bit of inflation creeping back into the system. So what next for these houses who have done incredibly well just from owning safe assets as well as equities? Mm. Very, very interesting as well. Did you want to come in on that? Well, only just to reiterate the point that if, if finally inflation is going to re-emerge as a stubborn force... A lot of these market participants are going to be the wrong side of uh, the asset ownership uh, uh, chart, effectively, because as we know, everybody's been forced to liability match, in part because of regulations, but also in part because of just proper management of the business. I was going to say, how outrageous they should be made to liability match, Jeff. Isn't that a terrible thing? You know, you've got liabilities over here, your assets over here, and what, this this strange concept that assets should somehow match liabilities over over the length of the cycle? Yes, but but we've debated this quite often, haven't we? And the the problem is... Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is that if you are being forced to own assets with diminishing yield, Mm. but your obligations remain the same and are growing, you have a problem you are taking a very slow route towards bankruptcy. Mm. Now, obviously, a lot of these companies are nowhere near anything like that. But the reality will come home to bear when they start to register capital losses on fixed income that they've invested in to match liabilities. And that is going to look very, very uncomfortable for a lot of uh, um, these uh, uh, pension companies well, that have been forced into buying fixed income products to match liabilities. Well, well you're the, the Martin Lewis of the show this week as well, doing the consumer bit on mortgage rates Thank earlier you. this week. But let me just take up your uh, consumer baton as well. What happens to lifestyling? We've all been told to lifestyle. We've all been told that as you and I get into our senior, more mature years, like a couple of ripe old cheeses, that yes. we should be lifestyling towards the bond market. Yeah. If the bond market has had its once-in-a-generational or once-in-a-several-decade um, peak, apex and decline at smallest yields and highest underlying, what happens to those lifestyling products? i tell you what happens. You have to rip up the rule book because so many real experts, the Mohammed Elerians of this world, are saying mm. they can no longer be a core part of your holdings. You have to look at them in different ways. Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, uh, not to be too glib about this, the reality is that you're going to live too long, right? Speak We're all going to live too long. I'm living hard so and fast. Assuming Jeffrey. that we Get hit 65 <laughs> and we have another 30 years on top of that, there is a real challenge. Oh, and the, the classic approach, as you say, has been to lifestyle, is to move yourself out of equities into bonds and products that give you a fixed return well, over what, the duration of your life. But if you do that at a moment where bonds are actually going to suffer capital loss because yields are going to rise here because inflation is coming back. Oh boy, you've got a real problem. You and I are never going to leave this place or they'll be taking us out in a box because the reality is you have to keep generating income if you're not getting sufficient return from your fixed income investments. But this is something our viewers really care about because I know that we have a a, a certain demographic as our core audience as well. But you said something very interesting there, which is terrifying for the insurance companies. 
we're going to live 30, 35 years after retirement. That mm. is the worst possible scenario for those insurance companies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially you and I. <laughs> Long may it that's, last. That's the plan. Long may it last. Right, Credit Agricole. Wowzers, do you know Credit Agricole? We talk about European banks and the struggles they're having and the profitability issues and everything. This one's up 33% this year. 24% over the last three months. A 33% year today. Extraordinary move to the upside. Do the numbers justify it? Well, they're all right. They're actually okay. They're very solid. Operating income, 2 billion euros in the third quarter. Gross operating income. Expectations, 1.8. Uh, third quarter revenues coming at 5.03 billion euros. The expectation was generally about 5. Uh, CT1 ratio, it's okay, but not stellar. 11.7%. It'd be nice to see a 12 handle. I think that's how a lot of the analysts view it as well. Uh, continuation of the implementation of the 2022 medium-term plan. Um, well, that doesn't give us too much extra colour as well. CET1 ratio secures dividend policy and makes first unwinding of the switch possible in 2020. Let me just tell you what the dividend is because people look at dividends north of 5% and go, okay, 5.5%. So solid, solid, big, big dividend there. The company says their CET1 ratio makes the dividend policy safe. Fascinating, particularly yeah. after what we saw with uh, Sockgen earlier in the week, where I think we were still asking some questions yes, about we this, to the turnaround strategy there. Um, uh, bang in line in terms of uh, the Richemont uh, sales numbers um, compared to expectations. Richemont, the, the luxury goods company, of course, sales increased by 9% uh, in actual exchange rates to 7.397 uh, um, and by 6% at constant exchange rates. The market was looking for 7.49 billion. So this is, this is in the range of uh, expectations. The uh, net profit coming in at uh, 869 million. Little skinny on what the market was looking for. The analysts had 971 million penciled in here. The operating profit, 1.7 uh, billion. So there was growth in most locations with strong double-digit sales progression in China and Korea, more than offsetting the double-digit sales contraction that we saw in Hong Kong. And clearly, Hong Kong, as we know, is uh, an idiosyncratic one-off situation at the moment because of the ongoing uh, di dispute with the government uh, and the protests. Um, sales in Asia-Pacific broadly rose by 5% over the period and by 4% excluding online distributions. The uh, group says um, all regions and distribution channels and business areas posted higher sales, again, flagging notwithstanding the Hong Kong issue, uh, primarily due to the difficult environment in Hong Kong. Specialist watchmakers in particular registered muted sales growth. And of course, in Hong Kong, there is always a huge uh, watch fair that takes place at the Convention and Exhibition Centre. And I think, um, obviously, the um, situation there at the moment, read the government and the protests having an impact on uh, the watch business. Yeah, the panther, the, the panther made of diamonds with the rubies for eyes. I can see you wearing yep. that one. I think you've got you. a couple like that, haven't you? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Home in the draw. Now, from Panthers to painting by numbers. Do you remember when your gran used to paint by numbers? No? Okay. Well, it was just my gran. Uh, but, but if I was training a journalist to say, oh, about this session, this is a real paint by numbers session, really. So it's a really easy one to tell the story on as well. So uh, everything risk on went up because of hopes on the trade deal. There you go. Your big macro story. Everything's going up as well. Uh, here you can see we're off our highs, actually. It's very interesting. I saw the S&B getting very close to 3,100 as well. Well, we're off our highs, but we've got intraday highs back on record levels for the Dow, for the uh, S&P and for the Nasdaq as well. Oil prices went up. 
gold went down. Very kind of easy one. Oh, yeah, risk off. Gold goes down, trading at its lowest levels for a couple of months as well. As I say, the oil price moving to the continued hope for momentum on the trade deal on phase one and the various reports are coming out of that as well. Seven out of 11 sectors were up. And incidentally, I thought you'd be interested to know that technology led once again the biggest contributors to the S&P, Google and Apple. And we saw uh, technology hitting fresh record highs as well. So it was a very, very easy session to take. Treasuries as well, you might want to look at this one as well. Again, we're talking about a little bit of risk off coming back in. Here you can see, look at that, back up to 1.91 on the US US 10-year note as well. So yields picking up, the underlying going down in the session as well. Should we have a look at the Asian markets? Let's do that. The director's back with me, so let's have a look. Here we go. Right, thank you. Um, more of a, a, a calmer session there. The uh, Hang Seng down 0.6 of 1%. I'm loath to ask for the opening calls, but I think they'll be there. Yeah, well done, guys. Oh, look, we're called quite a significant bit lower. And that's, as I say, because when we had the S&P levels, um, the European market closed, we were trading near the highest levels, and then we just tailed off a bit. So that's a little bit of what we're seeing here as well. But the aforementioned uh, Forex expert, I beg your pardon, fixed income expert, has joined yes. uh, our desk as well. So we'll be taking yes. him in a second. Yes, yes, we will. Uh, Scott Teal is here with us. He's settling himself in. You got a cup of tea? You okay? Oh, okay, okay. Oh, okay lovely. <laughs> um, I haven't got one, though, actually, if the yeah, team's... Yeah, sorry, I was a bit late getting you one. Um, let's move you on. Uh, no, no, no. Some, some, somebody, somebody kind from the gallery will probably help out in just a minute. Uh, White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro has poured cold water over comments made by China's Commerce Ministry, saying Beijing and Washington have agreed to cancel some tariffs if a phase one trade deal is completed. He told Fox News that there is, quote, no agreement to remove any existing tariffs, adding only President Trump can make that decision. A U.S. official appeared to confirm the rollback, telling Reuters it would be part of the agreement. Meanwhile, China's imports and exports fell less than expected in October in a welcome respite for Beijing, which continues to feel the effects of the additional U.S. tariffs imposed in September. China's trade surplus also rose during the month to $42.81 billion, beating estimates. Eunice has the report from Beijing. China's October trade data surprised to the upside. Exports dropped by 0.9% from a year ago versus an estimate for a decline of 3.9%. Imports sank 6.4% compared to a forecast for a fall of 8.9%. The overall trade surplus widened to $43 billion. Looking ahead, analysts believe that subdued global growth will continue to weigh on exports, even if the U.S. and China pull off a phase one trade deal. U.S. and Chinese officials have both said they have discussed phasing out tariffs. The Commerce Ministry says for a phase one trade deal to close, at least some additional tariffs have to go. Beijing wants the tariffs to be lifted at the same time by the same amount, though how much could be negotiated. The time and place of a deal signing has yet to be decided. However, it appears that there's an internal conflict within the White House about whether the U.S. should roll back tariffs for China. Opponents fear the U.S. could lose leverage in the trade negotiations. Even so, a White House spokesperson told Fox News that the Trump administration is still very, very optimistic that a trade deal could be reached with China soon. Eunice Yoon, CBC Business News, Beijing. Uh, Eunice, thank you. Scott Teal is with us, then Chief Fixed Income Strategist at BlackRock Investment Institute. Um, Scott, something's clearly going on here with the markets. Mm, Uh, In recent weeks, we've seen this inflection, it seems to me, where the markets become much more focused on the risk of growth weakening 
the response we've seen from central banks, but also the prospect of wages rising and driving a turn in inflation expectations. Is this real or is this a temporary phenomenon? Well, I think there's two things in the market. One has been obviously the, the release of geopolitical tension, right? The, the comments just made a minute ago about the negotiations between the U.S. and China have obviously had a positive impact on risk assets and had a very negative impact on risk-free assets like government bonds in particular. Also, I think the fact that the no-deal Brexit has been pushed to the side in the election cycle, et cetera, that also relieves some geopolitical tension. But I think more, more underlying and more fundamental in the economy is this idea that the U.S. consumer has really, really yet to roll over, right? In other words, we've looked at the impact that the trade has had on, let's say, manufacturing, on trade. But when we look at the impact on consumer, it's still, you know, still relatively positive, right? Look at the average hourly earnings, 3% year on year. The employment picture much stronger, even the last data set. Economic growth at 1.9%. So, you know, there's this, there's this kind of two-pronged, uh, I think, thing going on here, two-pronged uh, impact on the bond market. One is geopolitical risk is lessening. Again, hard to tell how real that is. And then the second is that, you know, this kind of the... the uh, the, the imminent recession seems to be fading in the market narrative. And, and yet corporate earnings are not necessarily improving at this stage. In fact, if anything, um, we've been distracted by looking at these geopolitical issues from really focusing down on corporate earnings, corporate profitability and corporate margins. And while we seem to have just about, be, you know, the, the, I yeah. would say we've sort of stepped over the lower expectations yeah. that companies have given us, it doesn't feel as though the corporate environment is very robust at the moment. I mean, this is what we talked about actually last time I was on the show. We were talking about right before earnings season. We we're talking about this idea that you know expectations, as as they generally do in a cycle, were beaten so down for earnings as we came into the season that you know to modestly outperform or to be inconsistent with that wasn't a very high hurdle. Mm. At the same time, I, I mean, I think if you look at the corporate dynamics, particularly as it relates to, let's say, corporate debt or to high yield or to bank loans, mm. you know, the, the funding, you know, availability is still very positive, but financial condition is still incredibly easy. So from a, you know, from a debt holder perspective, it still looks attractive despite, you know, the recent rate sell-off, which obviously has impacted corporate rates, but not as much as government bond yields. That's the smart narrative. What about the layman's <laughs> narrative as well? No, yeah, I'm always looking for the yeah. layman. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm the, the resident layman at CNBC. Uh, and actually, as opposed to Lehman's, um, um, <laughs> it's that time of year. And this time of year, people try and put a bit of money back on the table because they think there's going to be a Santa rally, because they think there's going to be a seasonal rally as well. So everything you just said was, you know, total makes sense. Right. Is there also another narrative? It's just like, it's just the time of year where people try and put money back to work. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? If we look at the one-year numbers, this is very funny that you say that because the one-year numbers on the bond market in particular capture the shift in Fed sentiment from the end of December of last year, right? It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's recent memory, relatively recent memory. So one-year returns in the bond market are 11%, right? Which is extraordinary compared to one-year return in the S&P, which is 14%, right? So just keep, because of where the calendar falls. Um, and so I think that, you know, market participants particularly reflect uh, as they come into the year end, they reflect on obviously their portfolios for 2020 and the risks that they have for 2020. But uh, I think market participants are very aware of the risk that we had at the end of last year, which was this, you know, the Fed tightened and then all of a sudden kind of shifted gears very quickly. How important is the congressional testimony from the Fed chair next week? 
Well, I mean, I think this, the, the tension between the, the president and the central bank is obviously something that market participants talk about quite a lot. I get a lot of questions about that. How does that impact monetary policy? How does that impact the independence of the central bank? And, you know, what we, we've always said is that that independence is gigantically important for the way monetary policy is run in the U.S. It's the same as it is in the U.K. and in Europe. Obviously not true in other places where the, the central bank and the government act more together. And, and so I don't know that, you know, I, again, I, I don't, I, obviously he feels the pressure because it, it's public about it, but I'm not sure that it, you know, has a direct impact on monetary policy. I think that they set the, the policy as they would, you know, using the tools they have. Quick one on European bonds, if I may. Um, the OATs, uh, I haven't seen, can we get the OATs up, the 10 year yield on that? I, 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 it, well, yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. investors rushing yeah. for that 0. 0.0.0.0, <laughs> 0.0.0, 6% right. yield or whatever. Right. But, but it did go positive. Yes. It, can we, can we draw anything from that? I mean, is, is there something happening, even, dare I say, in European fixed income? Well, I mean, I think, let's, again, let's look at the, what, what's actually happening and take a step back. So what we've had is we've had about a 45, 50 basis point uh, sell-off or, or yields have risen in the European bond market. It was pretty extraordinary, actually, all things considered, given you know the ECB moves in 10 basis point increments, right? So it's a relatively big move. Yeah. But actually, if you look further back and you take a look at the chart going back, you know, two years, you'll realize that obviously the market's still very... Yields are still incredibly low and negative across most of the, 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 the range. I think, you know, the, the ECB is clearly on hold. The market is reflecting on what the new leadership means about the potential drawing in of fiscal policy into uh, monetary policy more generally. Uh, and so I think the market is more reflective on policy going forward. But I really think, again, as I said at the outset, I think the driver here is risk on as you had mentioned, relative to the to the kind of the mood music becoming more soothing, I guess to use yeah. the right, you know, in, in US China trade. And again, whether you know whether these things are linked together, the market's perception that the global recession is far away. Scott, thanks very much indeed uh, for that. Um, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Uh, the switch on 5G may only have just have been turned on, but China has already turned its attention to 6G. Go online to find out what's in store for the next generation of mobile networks. Uh, we're going to take a break. We'll go to Brussels when we come back. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Goodbye since, uh, I don't know, since Angela Merkel. Uh, outgoing European Commission uh, uh, president. He's not just a European commissioner, he's the president. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker says he does not believe that President Trump will slap tariffs on European cars next week. In pre-released extracts of an interview with Germany's Süddeutsche Zeitung, uh, Juncker appeared confident in his prediction, saying, quote, you are speaking to a fully informed man. <laughs> 
You are speaking to a... I might use that as my, uh, my, on my business cards. You're speaking to a fully informed man. <laughs> uh, the US Commerce Department refused to comment. Uh, elsewhere, EU Economic Commissioner Pierre Moscovici told CNBC that he hopes to reach a trade resolution with the US. It's clear that I, if I look at the EU growth, uh, it is obviously linked to uh, the world economy, and the world economy uh, is now threatened by uh, uh, trade tensions. And that's why those trade tensions must be resolved. And we think first and foremost about the trade tensions between China and uh, the US. And, well, let's look at what will happen in the days or weeks to come. Uh, but uh, it would be, of course, good news to have an agreement between the US and China. Uh, as far as EU and US are concerned, I would thought that uh, we were more than allies, friends, and that between friends, you don't sanction each other. And uh, to me, that would be fully irrelevant that we have some escalation between uh, EU and US, and I still expect that we can find a solution. Uh, if it's not the case, of course, the uh, EU is fully ready to, to have the proper answers. Uh, that's normal. But uh, at one moment, we will also need to find a common way. Oh, I, I do love interviewing Pierre Moscovici, Willem. He's always, you know, he's a little bit fed up to be here, but I'm very hopeful going forward. Kind of but I thought it was absolutely fascinating. He was, he was, and I can almost tell why his brain was working. There's like, yeah, it should be good news if the US and China have a trade deal. But then I can almost think him saying, yeah, but if President Trump then turns his attention to Europe, then we're in trouble. Is that, is that, is that really bad for me to make those assumptions and that leap? I mean, we're always making assumptions, aren't we, and, and trying to divine the tea leaves when it comes to President Trump and trade policy. In terms of what we have heard over the last few days and weeks from the US administration, Trump said he doesn't necessarily want to move ahead with broader tariffs on the EU. Steve Mnuchin has said, well done, European car makers, you're investing more in the United States. Wilbur Ross has said he doesn't think that tariffs would be necessary right now. In terms of what the EU finance ministers here are saying, we had a chance to catch up with the Slovakian finance minister, Andrei Kamaniki. He's an important figure in this, in a sense, because Slovakia has the largest car export per capita in Europe. So this is an issue that really gets to the heart of their economy. And he said it's a really difficult question to answer right now, whether that November 14th deadline next month will mean that there is the imposition of car tariffs as there could be under that Section 232 authorization following that Commerce Department uh, investigation. Remember, it was postponed six months once before. One other voice in Washington worth looking out for, of course, is Chuck Grassley. He's head of the Senate Finance Committee. And he was asked about this recently. He says he's been trying again and again and again to get hold of the administration's report on the threat of European cars. He's not being given it. And he says he suspects that's because the administration is actually quite embarrassed about what it contains. And that's one strong reason he says he doesn't think these tariffs will be imposed anytime soon. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.